0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 66, The May 4th Incident. Last week, I left you with Duan Chirui for all practical purposes, being in control of the Chinese government. The incoming president, Zhu Xicheng, was to Duan a moderate candidate who could be counted upon to work with his Anhui clique. And while Duan, at the start of 1919, didn't hold any formal government posting, Through his clique, he held sway over national affairs. Unfortunately for him, this also meant that the general negative direction the country was going in was also considered his responsibility as well. Keep in mind the big problems I discussed last week. The Southern Rebellion, the emergence of rival warlord groups, the dependence on foreign loans, and also declining to redress all the concessions made to the foreigners, especially the ones made to Japan after their 21 demands in 1915. In the first half of 1919, all these things were going to feed into one another and set off a social movement that, while not immediately game-changing, would directly lead to the conditions of the China we know today to take root. It was actually Zhu Xicheng that took the initiative to try and address the most obvious problem at that moment, the Southern Rebellion. In his first major move as president, he called for a peace conference among all the major warlord groups it was decided that talks would take place in the foreign concession of Shanghai, which could be considered neutral ground. Duan was still opposed to peace, but bowing to foreign pressure to hurry up and make a settlement, agreed to the talks moving forward. The summit started on February 20, 1919 and dragged on until June, but the representatives between the North and South bogged down over demands for a truce that warlords on either side would not agree to. The talks were notable mainly in that it clearly demonstrated that Zhu was powerless to actually induce the military leaders to cooperate with him, and that Duan was quite happy to let the talks fail while he blamed the Southerners for demanding a truce while their armies were still on the move. Whatever luster the office of the president might have had since Yuan died was now long since gone, and military connections were all that mattered. Duan took the opportunity to again press for a combined military effort from the northern factions to reunify China. Except that Duan, by spring 1919, was also facing blowback for all his international policies. Remember, it had been him who had single-mindedly pushed for China to enter World War I on the Entente side. The intent was to get China settled onto the victor's table and give it a real voice to shape the new order to emerge from Versailles. The Japanese, meanwhile, had taken over the German interests in Shandong province, including the port of Qingdao, and their takeover was recognized as part of the 21 demands made to China. Those demands were incredibly unpopular, of course, among the Chinese intelligentsia, who correctly saw it as an affront to Chinese sovereignty. While Yuan had been the guy to cave to the demands, Duan wasn't doing much to rectify the situation, and his pro-Japanese leanings didn't do him any PR favors. The expectation among the Chinese was to use the negotiations to get those German concessions returned to China, as there wasn't any precedent for Japan to claim them by right of conquest, and the other great powers were not terribly interested in Japan becoming the de facto power in Shandong. And based on the principles of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, the local Chinese should be placed back under Chinese governance. On the surface, the chances seem reasonable for China to get a favorable result. But as we went over way back in Episode 3, that didn't happen. While negotiations progressed and it became apparent that Japan was setting the terms over the issue, word was leaked to the Chinese public that the Japanese were getting one over on. For a population sick of generations of foreign humiliation, this proved to be something of a breaking point. On May 4th, 1919, thousands of students protested the above-mentioned conditions of the In-Progress Treaty, and its betrayal of the promise to return Shandong fully to China. These protests rapidly spread not just through Beijing, but into the major urban areas of the nation as a whole. And it wasn't just students once things had spread out across the country. Anybody with a bone of national pride in them made their displeasure known. After years of being kicked around, there was now a national base of support to fight back against international depredations not just because of a distaste of outsiders pushing them around, but also because there had developed a coherent idea of China that people now wanted to stand up for. Chinese nationalism had truly awakened. Now, this is where I'm going to need to pause the narrative and take a closer look at just what was going on here. What was different about the Chinese intelligentsia in May 1919 compared to, say, 1911 or even before that? The general answer is that China had been going through social upheaval since the latter days of the Qing that was now mutating into strains of thought that had been wholly unforeseen by the men at the top and would not be understood by them until even later. And most of it stemmed from the decline of Confucianism as the dominant school of thought in Chinese society. I haven't mentioned Confucianism so far, mainly because it's going to be the ideologies that arose against it that will be most important to this story, but I might as well stop now and give a little context. Confucianism is a set of beliefs, etiquette, and philosophy that either vied for dominance of, or successfully dominated, Chinese society for thousands of years. Broadly speaking, it preached social harmony, loyalty, obedience to the family, and continuous self-improvement. The system also encouraged advancement based on merit, and not necessarily by blood or relations. This manifested in what became known as the examination system. Imperial China, and not just the Qing, but stretching all the way back to the Middle Ages, needed qualified bureaucrats to staff the administration. And to supply that need, a standardized system of examinations based on Confucian teachings was implemented. The tests became the obsession of those possessing brains, but lacking in worldly means, as they offered the opportunity to work in the far cushier desk jobs. This resulted in a whole heck of a lot of competition overtaking the examinations and then securing proper employment, and the tests were brutally difficult. They demanded exact and unerring knowledge of the canon of Confucian teachings, which went unchanged over centuries, as consistency was part of the point. There were also different levels of examinations, with the initial provincial tests resulting in only one in a hundred examinees passing muster. But even then, the surplus of guys who passed versus how many open positions there were, which put pressure on further advancement, where only 1 in 3,000 of those ones in 100 actually reaching the highest ranks. Like I said, the entire system was brutal. Remember back in episode 62, I mentioned that the instigator of the Taiping Rebellion was just some guy who couldn't get through the examinations. The experience of cramming for the tests only to fail multiple times at them, thus confirming that he would be denied the social advancement he sought, was crushing. So much so that his brain broke and he started claiming to be the brother of Jesus Christ and launched a rebellion that brought the Qing Empire to its knees. And while the elites didn't quite draw a lesson from that experience, there were calls to reform the system by the latter 1800s. I mentioned that Confucianism promoted social harmony and stability as parts of its foundation. Well, the consequence of that line of thought was to create a society that was simultaneously very stable, but also very ossified. As long as China was the undisputed heavy of East Asia, there wasn't any reason to embrace change, and it largely didn't. When the Westerners started showing up, though, that's when the introspection started. Chinese learning had fixated on perfectly transmitting knowledge as it had been known centuries in the past, as the glory of the empire was such that it couldn't get any better. As a result, a lot of what was learned via the examinations was badly out of date in the fields of science, and even in literature it used a badly archaic system of writing that no longer matched how people spoke. A good comparison I came across would be students basically writing in Latin Centuries after they and the rest of the land had moved on to Romance languages, except with an incomprehensible writing system tacked onto it. It was just terribly outmoded and illustrative of how conservative Confucian thought had become. Just imagine not just official documents and records, but also literature being produced in what was effectively a dead language for the sake of tradition. Moreover, when new material like poems or books were produced, they had to follow strict rules regarding their content and composition to keep them in line with what had come before. It seems crazy to think about even with modern knowledge of over-the-top controlled societies, but it was very real. And part of the reason it continued on for so long wasn't just inertia from being the uncontested master of the region, but also because those who achieved the rarefied positions promised by the examination system had a vested interest to keep things the way they were. These men had all sacrificed and suffered to rise to the top, uh, barring those who had managed to play the system via connections or money, and really didn't want their positions challenged once they were secure. This created a long cycle of abuse where those who had suffered through the system became also its greatest champions, with the mentality being passed from generation to generation. Once the long decades of national crisis started to hit though in the 1800s, Changes couldn't be delayed forever, and the elites were not blind to events happening around. Once the Westerners and later the Japanese started picking at China in earnest, it became obvious that the testmasters were incapable of stemming the tide, and some started working to change the system in order to save it. Attempts were made to incorporate modern mathematics and technological training, but these efforts were too little, too late. The disasters of the 1800s upended the country too badly for the Confucian elite to adapt in time to save itself, and many dissatisfied among the intelligentsia began advocating for a break from Confucianism and an embrace of Western practices. Simply picking and choosing what could be considered compatible with the Confucian canon wasn't enough. A full-scale adoption was needed to advance China into the future. Though, mind you, there wasn't really consensus as to how that would work. And as you might have noticed in this series so far, conditions were not optimal for a systematic reform of the education system. The biggest proponents of a break with tradition came from students who had gone abroad to study. What they saw made them realize that a Chinese society based on Confucian principles was not the epitome of civilization, but rather just one example of a kind of civilization. Based on what they saw, it was a fatally flawed one that couldn't survive the pressures of modernity. These students, too, were operating outside the examination system, which had, along with the Qing, become something of a scapegoat for China's weakness. Over the years, these students would bring back with them every bit of Western knowledge and all the arts and sciences they could get their hands on, then spread it as far as they could. A key difference between their experience versus their Japanese counterparts was that they had no love for an empire which they no longer identified with. Nor was there uh, any government programs in place to assist them or make systematic use of their knowledge. With their monopoly on higher education broken, the Qing would end the examination system in 1905, which in turn ended the Confucian grip on the bureaucracy. And with the Confucian's power at the top broken, Chinese society had to grapple with the new ideas moving in. Keep in mind, this was not an overnight thing, and the time period we'll be covering on this podcast is very much a transitional one for China. The final breaking of Confucian influence would only come after concerted efforts by the eventual communist government. But in the aftermath of the 1911 revolution, changes started becoming noticeable. I earlier talked about how Yuan Shikai was uneasy with the sudden freedom of expression of Republican China, and how deference, much less blind obedience to central authorities, was no longer a given. The old Confucian goal of social harmony, even when turning a blind eye to individual miseries, was falling away. If there were problems, they would be pointed out and open to criticism. This extended to personal relationships as well. The family was traditionally dominated by the male head of the household. Questions of marriage and goals in life were made by him. Going into the 1910s, though, children of some of the more well-off families began asserting themselves, wanting to marry for love or follow their passions. People who were able started dressing how they wanted, thinking how they wanted, pursuing their own interests, obedience to family, but damned. For women especially, it was important because for some it meant getting an education and having an independent life. Now, mind you, this didn't hold true for all of China. Primarily, this change in mindset benefited those whose lives weren't dominated by simply surviving. But it was a start. And this openness to Western ideas of learning and living also started opening China to political thought. I've been nebulous about that topic because the concerns of influential Chinese typically rested with their home provinces concepts like democracy republics dictatorships and such weren't all that important to them as long as their own positions at home were secure but as we get closer to 1920 those elites started to realize that their positions might not actually be all that secure even after the Qing were disposed of the aftermath of the 1911 revolution had gotten rid of the ineffectual monarchy but the increasingly escalating civil wars and political fragmentation made people realize that the Qing and their court might not have been the only problem. If China was to be revitalized, many came to the conclusion that it would require a national ideology to go along with it. I mentioned before that a conception of China and being Chinese was percolating, and by 1919, new schools of thought were embracing these modern concepts. One of the first to catch on among the students and exiles of China by 1911 were the anarchists, and if you guessed that anarchism caught on because it was the most direct rejection of Confucianism, you'd be right. The traditional hierarchies in both social and family life that were held up to promote harmony were direct targets of their ire, and instead a community of fully equitable individuals was the desired endgame. The movement would coalesce around a man named Liu Shifu, who created a group known as the Conscience Society, which was a great name and was also the outfit that other anarchists would kind of orbit around, seeing as how the philosophy was too diffuse to create formal parties. Another organization was the Chinese Socialist Party under the aegis of Zhang Kenghu. Zhang's school of thought also embraced anarchism and could be more accurately called anarchist socialist, but unlike Liu's approach, allowed for recognizable governing structures among communities, although still at a local level. Despite the debates between the two, Both would advocate for dissolving traditional family structures, empowering women, ending racial and cultural boundaries, and placing governance in the hands of the masses. Which were all things the new government under Yuan Shikai very much disliked. And as part of Yuan's oppressions, he targeted both groups. Liu and the Conscience Society were so decentralized in their activities that while it was hard to expand their formal membership, they avoided the worst of it. Jiang, though, had to flee to America after his party was dissolved in 1913. Despite his early exit from Chinese political life, he had made a number of new converts to the cause of socialism and the idea of empowering the masses. One of those who embraced the message was a young soldier named Mao Zedong, who in 1911 was serving as a provincial soldier as part of the revolution in Changsha, the capital of the Hunan province. Uh, He's going to be important later. And while both of those groups would largely fade by 1919, their anarchist utopian message would not. And during the latter 1910s, there would be an economic change that would expand the audience of a proletarian message. In the Japan series, I discussed how World War I was a boon to the Japanese industry as the sudden disruptions in Europe created both a surge of demand and a shortfall of production. And while China didn't benefit nearly as much as Japan did, Many Chinese businessmen started setting up factories, especially in major ports like Shanghai, and this expanding business class were not beholden to the old Confucian ways. They were Western capitalists pretty through and through, which meant that their workers that staffed the new factories were exploited relentlessly, and very quickly they started embracing Marxist thought that was filtering into the country. Now, China by no means became industrialized in this time and places like Shanghai or Guangzhou were not representative of the entire country. But they were important economic centers, especially Shanghai, and they exercised an outsized influence over the rest of the nation. And very quickly, ideas based on socialism started to spread throughout the country. It wasn't transmitted completely, and the conditions for the eventual Chinese Communist Party to form weren't quite ripe yet, but it was still an exciting start. All of a sudden, the downtrodden of the nation were presented with ideas that appealed to them and gave them a sense of identity and purpose beyond hierarchical drudgery. And just in general, for the intelligentsia of China, there was an increasing frenzy for a break with the past and an embrace of all things Western. And I don't use the word frenzy as a flourish. People were feeling the very foundations of the world they had known moving beneath them, and they did not want to squander the chance at creating an ideal society which goes back to what I was saying earlier about people getting really frustrated with Duan's government not really going anywhere. The warlords were mostly too wrapped up in their squabbles amongst each other to properly address the growing sentiment, and while Duan and the others weren't blind to what was happening, they didn't really have any ideas beyond occasional crackdowns that didn't achieve anything beyond alienating the populace, so they weren't exactly the uh, forward-thinking types. Someone who was a forward-thinking type was a man named Chen Duxiu. If you love Chinese political minutiae even more than I do, you'll recognize his name as the founder of the Chinese Communist Party. But before his 1919 conversion to Marxism, he founded a journal called New Youth in 1915. It was one of many new publications pushing for reform and attacking all things old, and it rapidly became the most popular and influential. One of the reasons for that was because the journal was printed in the modern vernacular, not the stodgy and grossly outdated Confucian-backed writings of the establishment. Other publications also did this, but the New Youth did so while calling for the dissolution of the old ways and was therefore edgier. It also correctly predicted which way the winds were blowing, as by the 1920s the old system of writing had been discontinued. New Youth published a message of individualism, modernity, and an emphasis on reformed education. It wasn't specifically political until later, and it was only in 1919 that Chen himself came to embrace the conclusion that the West had not yet reached the end of its own journey to true modernity by embracing socialism, which thereafter became the ideology of choice for Chen, as it was the most perfectly egalitarian and scientific. Taken as a whole, this turn to the West was called the New Culture Movement, and while due to the turmoil of the warlord conflicts, its successes were mostly confined to the transmission of new ideas and ways of thinking, it did provide the springboard of support that both the communist and nationalist revolutions would take off from. Speaking of which, before I get back into the details of the actual May 4th incident, I will acknowledge that Sun Yat-sen's nationalist movement was also gaining steam and itself was of vital importance. And also, the KMT was going to benefit greatly from the public anger that lingered on after the actual incident itself. But their story is really too large to summarize here, and I promise I'll talk all about them in a future episode. For now, I do got to get back to the May 4th protests. So yeah, where was I? Oh yeah, thousands of angry students loudly rejecting what was coming out of Paris. Their outcry caused a stir that spread quickly across the most connected areas of the country. Turns out it wasn't just the idealistic youth that had gotten fed up. Very quickly after the students took to the streets, Prominent merchants and businessmen got in on the action across China and simply shut their businesses down, grinding economic activity to a halt. Duan didn't really know what to do. The protest coming from the bourgeois was really bad as he needed their support to keep the state going. Then, it got worse for him. The workers of the country, especially in Shanghai, took to the streets and started striking as a form of protest large numbers of women started joining them, something that hadn't happened before, and demonstrated both how angry the populace was and how women were taking a much more active role in society. He did try jailing many of the students, because of course, but by June, Duan threw up his hands and started offering concessions. He released the jailed students and removed many of his own ministers that were considered too close to the now-hated Japanese. It wasn't an overwhelming victory, but it was a vital one and signaled a Rubicon moment in Chinese politics. The government had been challenged by a broad proportion of society, specifically by the masses of the cities, which was not something that had been seen really before. Sure, during 1911 the revolutionary army had been filled out by those masses, but they were operating under the auspices of the elites. This time they had way, way more agency, and for the participants they discovered that they liked it. China was always a massive nation with a massive population. But what always held those masses back from more direct participation in national affairs was a lack of consciousness owing to a lack of education, infrastructure, and an ideology geared to serve them. But now, texts were being published in a language they could understand, distributed via mass printings, and the egalitarian ideals presented sounded good to them. Again, this wasn't an overnight thing, but this is where the boulders started to roll downhill. Duan was not challenged by an individual rival here by a proactive mass of Chinese tired of the way things were going, and who had an increasingly clear idea of where things should go. Juan probably didn't appreciate at the time, but the days of warlords nihilistically competing in a zero-sum game for power were doomed even before their heyday had even got going. While China's darkest days still laid ahead, the foundations of the age after were already being set. One notable trend post the events of May 4th was a consolidation of ideology to actually harness this new energy and put it to good use. I talked about how, before 1919, Chen's New Youth periodical covered a wide spectrum of topics and was pretty open to most Western schools of thought, or at least commented on them. This was representative of a more diffuse time among the Chinese intelligentsia, where there was still room for the liberalism that was traditional in the West, or even salvaging some aspects of Chinese thought in conjunction with that. The aftermath of May 4th ended that, and there was a swing towards outright revolutionary action. After all, Duan had demonstrated that while he would give small concessions, his overall policy of placating the Japanese in exchange for support wasn't going to end, and the students that it took to the streets lacked an army to challenge the warlords. With the proletariat at their backs, they could potentially have that army, albeit after a lot of organization. What I'm getting at is that May 4th as a protest was all well and good, but what was actually required was a direct confrontation with the emerging warlords. This would require mass mobilization, and that in turn rewarded ideologies that could both organize and appeal to the masses, something that the communists and nationalists were going to be very successful in, while the other political schools of thought lagged far behind. But that's still for the future, although an increasingly close one but a future one, nevertheless. We do still have Duan in Beijing, but with the wide protests and the ongoing and unpopular war to the south, his regime was now open to a direct challenge. And Cao Kun, Wu Fu, and the rest of the Jili clique were not going to be kicking it while Duan's position looked weak. Next week, the forces of the Anhui and Jili factions go head-to-head in the first of the pointlessly many warlord battles over the capital. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.